Welcome to Coffee with Kim. I'm Kim Kelp, and every week you and I sit down with fascinating, smart, and talented leaders, CEOs, and founders so that we can copy their homework. If someone knows how to do something really well, I want to know what it is and exactly how they're doing it. Get ready for aha moments, gems of wisdom, and little known tips and tricks that we can steal and use in our own lives. If you want to join these conversations and ask these experts your own questions, no point in just me having all the fun. Join us on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern live over on LinkedIn. Happy Wednesday, my friend, and greetings from Austin, Texas, where I am coming to you, creating my own story in my cup with a green tea. I'm so excited that you're here today joining us. If you haven't already, say hi in the comments. Let us know where you're coming in from, perhaps what is in your cup, so we can all feel like we are just hanging out together. If this is your first time here, welcome. We are a super fun bunch that meets live every single Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern right here. We meet with interesting founders, leaders, executives, really smart, talented people in their field. What do we do? We go back to high school. We copy all their homework. We steal all of their secrets that were like, oh, why would I learn this when you are the expert and you already know all the answers? We copy all of their homework and we use it for our everyday lives, which is sort of my favorite thing. And I actually made a whole post about this uh, that I posted on LinkedIn yesterday, but I also posted it on uh, Instagram and TikTok and all the other social media channels. But it was really talking about how early in your career you should be in the how business. Like you are the CEO, the chief everything officer. Like you just figure everything out. You hustle, you figure it out, you, you figure out how to be the go-to person. And then as you kind of get into your more established stages of the career, you become the, the who person. Who can I locate that is the master at this domain, whether it is copywriting or SEO or plumbing? I don't know. I don't know what comes up in your everyday life, but finding out who is the master of that instead of you trying to reinvent the wheel and become the master every single time a new challenge or obstacle occurs in your life. So I feel like we have hit the jackpot when it comes to that today, because holy moly, hopefully you have done your Google stalking on today's guest, Debbie, because she she's one of those people like, you know, Madonna or Oprah, like they don't even need a last name. They don't even need an introduction. They're just like, they're, they're, they're like the goat, the greatest of all time or the Tom Brady. Debbie is the Tom Brady. I said this last week. Debbie's like the Michael Jordan. Like you just, it's like one word. It's just like Debbie. Not to be confused with the 80s star, although that would be interesting as well. Not to be confused with that Debbie. Debbie Gibson, I think her name was, but also amazing. But Debbie's just, she's the goat when it comes to anything creative, design, branding, visuals, designing your life, all of it. If you didn't Google stalker, I'll give you like the top, the top sexy uh, factoids, which is number one. Fast Company named her one of the most creative people in business. I mean, that alone is like a mic drop. She's not done one, two, three, seven books, seven books, which is just 
next next level. Um, her last book came out in February. Uh, it's called Why Design Matters, Conversations with Some of the Most Creative People. And what's great about this is it's sort of a, I call it the warm cup of tea. You like snuggle in with this book and it recaps these amazing stories from people that she's had on the podcast who have become her friends. It's just, it's amazing. Uh, her podcast, The Iconic Design Matters, has been around for 17 years. Okay, I haven't even been working for 17 years. So just, again, mind blown, bananas. And that is just iconic in its own right. And then again, she was like the president of Sterling Brands. The list goes on. If you haven't noticed, I'm like eight bullet points in and I haven't even finished the other eight. I won't even finish the other eight because you need to do this Google stalking on your own. You need to be copying this homework by yourself. So I'm glad that Nate has had his protein powder. I'm glad that we are ready to go. Um, and Jeff is ready and Javier and Mike. Oh man, we are going to have a party. So Javier and Mike and Anya and Jeff and Samir and everybody who's here, can you please help me raise a glass and welcome Debbie to join us for coffee. <laughs> Kim, thank you so much for that generous introduction. Thank you. Thank you. That was so lovely. I feel like I am in the presence of like the Kate Middleton. Like you are royalty. You are like, I mean, right? Maybe I'm starstruck. I'm freaking out over here. I'm sweating. I'm, I'm like, if she's going like this, <laughs> that's why. Well, thank you that that you're 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 making me blush, <laughs> and I can see that for a fact. <laughs> well, well deserved, and I'm so curious. It was sort of cosmic because obviously I have been listening to a ton of your podcasts and researching like crazy over the past week beyond what I already knew. I feel like I'm a stalker, but in like a cool way, like not like creepy. I'm gonna show up at your house way, but but like a, a nice way. And so one of the things that I thought was so interesting is I just made this whole post, which I referenced talking about like early in your career, it's all about the how, and then later in your career, it's all about the who. And I'm curious for you, because you, you also talk about on many different podcasts, how you made this switch into having like a job that was secure mm -hmm. and maybe that you weren't crazy about to you know, having a job that obviously now you are designing your life and you're, you're wonderfully thrilled with your career. So I'm curious, like, was that a cognitive like switch for you? Or is that just something that kind of like happened and then you realized you did it afterwards? Well, it's, it's been really, it was done in stages, some of which were more organic and others were more intentional. And because they were less organic, they were much more difficult. I, I made the decision back in, I want to say, 1983 when I graduated college, so well before you were born. And I decided at that point, given my somewhat insecure history growing up with lots of different turbulence, I wanted to have, I wanted to be able to rely on myself. I wanted to be able to take care of myself. I wanted to be self-sufficient. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, I chose the, a more commercial path. I wanted to do something creative and artistic, but I ended up pursuing graphic design as opposed to fine art or any type of less commercial, more 
I guess more creative um, path because I didn't think the chances were high that I would be successful. And I needed to be able to pay my rent. It was really as simple as that. I needed to be in an environment where I was safe. I needed to be in an environment where I knew that I could be. And that resulted in some requirements. And that was, I needed to be able to take care of myself. I needed to pay my rent. I needed to be able to count on my future as much as possible. And so at that point, I made the decision to go into commercial art because I knew I would get a steady paycheck every week. And I did, it wasn't very much, <laughs> but it was, it was enough. And I would say the first 12 years of my career, I tried to make a name in graphic design. And that proved to be really difficult. What's interesting looking back was I thought I was going to be going into a career path that would be easier, but it wasn't easy. And in fact, I don't think anything is easy. I, you know, working working as a barista is is hard. Working in any service industry is hard. So I'm not entirely sure why I thought it would be easier. I think looking back on it now, I think that it was more about less shame if I wasn't successful. You know, if I wasn't successful at this thing that I wasn't 100% into to begin with, I wouldn't be mortally heartbroken and so and i feel like that's something that so many people struggle with is that shame like if i'm not good then i'm worthless right time so much of your work to your self-worth yes yes which how did you how were you able so early on to like untangle that oh it wasn't early on (laughs) it wasn't early on okay I, I sort of went deeper and deeper into a whole sort of into the into the rungs of hell <laughs> to, to use a Dante metaphor, um, <laughs> and and, I, and I'm saying that facetiously because there's really no part of my career that I would say was was in any way hell like. It was just a struggle for a really really long time. In those first twelve years, I've I've often referred to as experiments in rejection and failure because that's really what it was—just one humiliation after another. I very quite by accident fell into branding. I did not intend to go into branding, though I ended up doing really well in it. It was just kismet that that occurred. I grew up it with a, with a family who uh, my dad owned a mom and pop shop kind of pharmacy and always worked behind the cash register and always made the sort of DIY signage for the shelving and I don't know if it was because that because of that intrinsic experience working in customer service essentially for so much of my early life that I began to understand the psychology of why people buy certain things or choose certain things or want certain things, or because I also used brands as I was growing up to help buoy an otherwise really insecure center and and really gave these brands power over me in that if I had them or wore them or participated with them in some way, they'd enhance who I was. Um, but 12 years into my career, ended up as a salesperson in a branding agency and suddenly really did 
hit it out of the ballpark. You know, I was able to cultivate a really beautiful career in a lot of ways just by intrinsically understanding what I was doing and then really learning what I was doing and, and over, over the 20 or so years becoming better at it. Well, and I feel like you reached a point in your career that people had always been reaching, but I, this is my personal opinion, I feel COVID really sped up. And that was reaching this point in your career where you are good at something, you are freaking amazing at it, but you don't necessarily like it. And I always say those are two different things. You can be good at something. For instance, I like to say that I'm good at managing people. I don't like managing people. Yeah. I don't like it. I, I want to manage myself. Like, and then I want everybody else to manage themselves. Um, and so, you know, you kind of came upon that really um, naturally at a point where you had this opportunity to become, you know, the, the CEO and president of Sterling Brands, and you decided not to, to go that route. And I think there was a lot of people during the pandemic or at some point, maybe even as we're coming out of the pandemic, who are kind of going, do I step back into my quote unquote old life, or maybe there is a promotion or something, or do I kind of take this chance? I've kind of sort of been awoken like a sleepy bear and say, what am I doing in finance? You know, I need to go be a yoga instructor. I don't know, just something that, that sort of calls to them. And do, have you seen a lot of that? And then for you that's been through it, what advice or words of wisdom do you have for people that are maybe like feeling that right now? Sure. That's a great question, Kim. Um, for those that might not be aware, what Kim is referring to is after 20 years at Sterling Brands as president of the design division, I was offered the CEO position. And I had been thinking at that point about the next stage of my life. I was already well into my 50s and had already spent seven years working at the School of Visual Arts, developing my master's in branding program. I had a whole other slew of ideas of things that I wanted to make and try and had been slowly planning my exit strategy from Sterling after selling the company to Omnicom. And is that you? It's not me, but just I turned off my phone. Can't be me because I'm on airplane mode. I always say this is when we know we're live, people. <laughs> and any if anyone was doubting, that's why you don't see me picking my nose. We're live. We can't cut it out. Um. I'm just going to turn off my phone just to make sure. I was on airplane mode, so I can't imagine that it was me, but just in case. Um, sorry about that. Um, I know I always say that anything can and will happen during live radio or live audio. And so 100%. it sends to, to video as well. So in any case, um, I was offered this position, but I had already started thinking about what I was going to do next. Here I was at this opportunity in my life, in this place where I had done kind of everything that I wanted to from a corporate perspective. But thinking back to all those things back in 1983, when I had made that decision to take that safer path, and it led me down a wonderful journey, on a wonderful journey. But here I was 
finally able to say, you know what, there's no question anymore that I can take care of myself. I can rely on myself. I've sold my company. I'm in a wonderful position to be able to take more risks, live with more uncertainty because certain things are more secure. And I was in my fifties. It was like, if not now, when, when am I going to do this? And I, really struggled because part of me thought, wow, CEO, it's the pinnacle. I've reached the tippy top. And what about, you know, being another woman and a woman senior executive within Omnicom and what kind of example can I show? And after four months, the current CEO, the one, the man that my partner who offered me the, his position said, you know, Debbie, if it's taking you four months to decide to do something, you probably don't want to do it. And that opened my sort of synapses in a way that nothing else previously had. And I turned the job down and no one, no one in my life thought I was going to do that. My brother was certain. He was certain. He's like, oh, they've got you. You're going to do it. You're going to keep doing it. And, and I really surprised a lot of people. And I think mostly I surprised myself because I'm also a people pleaser and I never want to let anybody down. And I didn't want to let my partner down. We've been already working together for 21 years. He was passing me the mantle. Other people wanted the position, but I was next in line. And so I, I turned it down. And it was really the best decision that I ever made. And one bit of advice that I'll give you is that most decisions are hard before you make them. But if they're the right decision, once you make them, they become rear view mirror. They, then, you're, then you're off to doing the next thing. And, and there's not a day in my life that I regret having made that decision. It was a bit of a transition in rethinking my identity, literally and figuratively, and really starting to hold myself to the fire in terms of actually doing the things that I said I always wanted to do. But that first step was probably the most courageous step I've ever taken in my life. Um, I mean, by far. And I think for most people, leaving that comfort, leaving that comfortable, cozy blanket known, whether it is a job or a role or a position, that is horribly uncomfortable. And no one really, everyone wants to talk about the shiny, you know, oh, you got a promotion. Oh, whatever. But if on the inside, you're like, oh, you're like dying inside, then it's sort of like, oh, everyone else thinks this is all sunshine and rainbows. But I sort of feel, I don't know, icky about it, or it doesn't feel like a full bodied yes you know, to, to your point. And so I'm, I'm curious for you, like, you know, obviously when you started your career in 1983 versus now in 2022, you know, you have a, a wealth of knowledge and, and also the times are totally different. I always tell people when I started my business, there was no such thing as Instagram. There's right. no such thing as Spotify. Like we're in a completely different world. And I only started my business 11 years ago. So like we've seen crazy changes in the last decade. So I'm curious for you, do you have different advice or I guess future setting advice if someone watching and listening to this is early in their career, let's say they're, I don't know, 30 and younger versus somebody who's like 30 and older who maybe has, you know, been in, in the workforce for 10 plus years, what sort of advice would you give them to kind of live a little bit more authentically or, or design their own life instead of really living by default, kind of just climbing up the corporate ladder without really thinking about it. 
I have so much advice. <laughs> I'm going to be one of those like elderly women that are like, just do whatever I say and you'll be fine. Um, you know, had to like that accent. Yes. Uh, so, so the first bit of, of advice that I would give is be wary of seeking self-worth through accomplishment. And what I mean by that is for every promotion I ever wanted, once I got the promotion, it was never enough. And I remember the first time that I commanded and got my first VP title. I remember it was, I got a new job. I, I asked for the title. I got it. I left the interview knowing that I got the job and I sort of skipped back to my previous job where I wasn't a VP. And I remember the sort of euphoria, like, this is it. I've made it. And that lasted for like three minutes. I mean, <laughs> I mean maybe, maybe a little bit more, but we metabolize our accomplishment really quickly. We're, you know, humans are metabolizing machines. We metabolize everything. We metabolize our food. We metabolize our feelings and we metabolize our accomplishments. And so everything that we're seeking, if we're seeking it to feel better about who we are or to get others to feel better about who we are, that's fleeting and it will never ever be enough. You know, Dan Pink talks about how if our idea of happiness is a certain size flat screen TV, we're playing a fool's game because as soon as we get that thing, then we'll find something else to pin our hopes on. So. So I just suggest that people be wary of how much they think they need something in order to feel complete or accomplished. And then the second thing is, um, well, I feel like I have five things, but the second thing is I would really recommend that people expect to be afraid to make changes. There's so many young people that I know that are like, oh, when I feel better about this or that or my talent or my weight or whatever, I will then go after this thing. I'll feel better about myself. And that doesn't happen either because we are hardwired. Our DNA, our, our, chemi our chemistry is hardwired to avoid at all costs uncertainty and unpredictability. Our reptilian brain is, is the part of the brain that controls all of our involuntary actions. So our heartbeat and our digestion, eye blinking, things that we don't think about that really keep us alive. If we were to cross the street and nearly get hit by a car, the surge of adrenaline that we feel wouldn't be something we could will. We can't say, okay, adrenaline, be, be on guard. It happens involuntarily. And so when we're facing insecurity, when we're facing something where we don't know the outcome, our DNA, our hard wiring is to be worried and afraid and uncertain of that future. And so you can't wait until you feel better about yourself. You have to do it while you're working on feeling better about yourself and then hope that in the process over time, just based on your own growth as a human, as opposed to accomplishment, you'll begin to really accept who you are and feel good about yourself. So, so I would say that expect anything that you do to come with trepidation. Another bit of advice would be for people to understand that anything worthwhile takes a long time. 
anything, and I talk about this a lot, we are so used to speed and, gra and immediate gratification. You know, we can communicate. so Especially with these. Right. And real mastery takes time. And so the more you can give yourself that runway and rather than compare, which is what we tend to do, understand that everybody has their own private struggles. Everybody has their own journey and their own timing and work to your own schedule, not anyone else's. So that would be another thing. And then one thing that I learned from Dan Gilbert, Dan Gilbert um, has done some really remarkable TED Talks. Uh, a TED Talk he did many, many years ago, really kind of at the beginning of TED, is, this, is a, a talk titled The Surprising Science of Happiness. And in that, and he, and he subsequently wrote a book as well about happiness. And in the TED Talk, he talks about what is considered organic happiness. Organic happiness is the happiness you get when you go after what you want and you get it. Yay, happy, at least for a while, right? Then you have what he calls synthesized happiness, which is you go after what you want, you don't maybe get it, but then you find something else and you get that and you then become happy. So it's sort of a pivot, but you end up with happiness. And when you're feeling happy, whether it's synthesized or organic, your body doesn't know the difference. You're just happy. And so the only way to really live an unhappy life is to not go after what you want, is to not go after what you want, because then you're living in a perpetual state of regret, which is what if I had done, what if I could do, and you have no closure because there's no conclusion to that question. There's no answer to that question because you haven't tried. So you can go after what you want, get it, yay. You can go after what you want, not get it, pivot to something else. Or you could not go after what you want and be miserable and live in regret for the rest of your life. You choose. You choose. Well, I love this idea of really taking the learnings from other people, whether it is books you've read or experiences that you've lived and sharing those out, which I think you have done obviously a tremendous job of, whether it is books or the podcast or the teaching. And that's why I'm super curious, you know, considering how much of what I would call like giving back, you know, giving back of knowledge or lessons or, you know, hardships that you've experienced. I'm curious why now in your career, for anybody that doesn't know, uh, you have a LinkedIn learning course that is, is coming out. And so I'm curious what, what kind of propelled you to say now's the time? Because you do have a lot of other things going on. What was that sort of spark that you're like, you know what, this feels like the right moment? Um, honestly, I was invited to do it. I, there was never any um, resistance or reluctance to wanting to do it. The, the LinkedIn folks did not have to persuade me or twist my arm in any way. They were like, do you want to do this? And I was like, yes, I'd love to. That would be great. That would be really fun. Um, my only pushback to them was to do something that I hadn't done before. Because mm -hmm. when they first came to me and gave me an outline of things that they thought I could talk about, I was like, I've talked about these things already. And I don't want to talk about them again. Regurgitate, so yeah. People can get them from my AIGA talk or my TED talk or you know any any number of things. And I just wanted to create something new and interesting and different based on 
my more recent learnings, especially given the change that I made in 2016 with this sort of move to more self-generated work. And so, and that's, so that's what I did. And so what was sort of the secret sauce that you felt like is going to make this like to your point, like not a regurgitation of the TED talk or not a sort of remix, add a few little changes to one of your earlier books. Well, it was because it was almost like lived real experience in the moment. And mm -hmm. so it was really about how do you begin to consider the possibilities for your future in a different way? And how do you take those first steps? And, and as I mentioned, you know, people say, oh, I'll do this when I feel this, when I feel better, when I feel this or that. And because of the science really proving that that moment never comes, I felt like there was an opportunity to share some real life learning that would give people the courage to take that first step, you know, and that's something I learned from the writer, Danny Shapiro, when I was thinking that you did need that confidence to take that step. She was like, Oh, I think confidence is overrated. What's so much more important is courage. And courage is what you do when you don't have confidence or you're not sure how the outcome is going to result, or you don't know what the future holds. And that, courage to take that first step into the unknown is the first step towards confidence because what i then spent a long time thinking about is well what is that definition of confidence and ultimately i think it's very simple it's the successful repetition of any endeavor we are pattern recognizing junkies we love to be able to recognize our our patterns and existing ways of doing things till we have mastery and once you start doing something, you do it over and over. You know, we all have car confidence for those of us that can drive. For those of us that are able-bodied and can walk, we have walking confidence. When you fall, then you become less secure. If you have a car crash or you get a ticket, you become less secure. Um, so I think that ultimately, the more you do something, the better you become at it. That's where the time and mastery sort of intersect. And then ultimately you begin to develop confidence. And so all of these fallacies that, that I sort of spent so many years buying into, I wanted to begin to debunk a little bit and, and try to, in as honest and as meaningful a way as possible, share what I've learned now as I've been doing this for close to 40 years, how could I help people do it too? Well, and I know the course can really, when we talk about who should really be, you know, sinking into this course in a deeper way, to me, it, it could be applicable to a 22-year-old as applicable to a 72-year-old. So I'm curious for you, if you had to pick um, some like feelings that would come up, like if you're feeling like you're at a inflection point, this is going to be a good course to watch, or what are some feelings that you, you think would resonate with someone that would just get a lot out of this new LinkedIn learning course. If somebody wants to feel like they're stewarding their career, this will give you an opportunity to either double down on what you're doing and do it better or rethink the possibilities before you censor them and deflect them or eliminate them 
and reconsider what you might want to do with your life, either at the beginning of your career, the middle, or somebody like me that's well into the sort of seasoned years and begin to create your own body of work, a self-generated body of work that can really express what you want without client intervention, without anybody telling you exactly what you need to do other than your own heart. So, you know, this is something that I kind of wish that I had when I was in my 20s because I might have made different decisions. But if I had made different decisions, you know, as Seth Godin would say, I wouldn't be right here right now. So I, there's no regrets in that regard. But it would have been nice to, to have somebody say, oh, you know, take a chance, Debbie. You'll, you, you know, knowing you and your work ethic, you have a chance of being successful at this. And that's sort of what I'm saying to folks that, that take the class. But I also feel that because so much of my career manifested after taking Milton Glaser's class in my 40s, where I did reboot my life and my career, that I've taken a lot of that learning and embedded it into the class as well. So there were three inflection points in my life. My first inflection point in my early 20s, that summer after graduation, well, actually four. Another inflection point when I sort of gave up on what was possible for me and took the lowest hanging fruit job just because I needed to pay my rent. And that was in my early 30s. Then in my early to mid 40s, when I started work being taught by Milton Glaser and began to rethink what was possible. And then in my mid 50s, when I said, you know what? I, if not now, when? So that's sort of the history of, of my journey and what I've tried to embed in the class. Well, and I'm glad you brought up this concept of chances or, or other roads or paths that you could have taken, because I think Javier asked a really poignant question here, which I think is, is sort of, you could take this answer a lot of different ways, but how much of your success do you think is luck? I think a lot of it is luck, but I think that I was there to receive the luck. I was there. I was. I was. I was showing up, and the luck hit. You know, I had, Elizabeth Gilbert talks about how she just has to sit down and write every day, and yeah. then sometimes the muse comes through her, and sometimes it doesn't. And I would say the same thing. You have to work really hard every day, and sometimes your numbers hit and you get lucky. <coughs> Excuse me. And other times you don't. Well, and it reminds me of, I'm blanking on Seth's latest book, but Seth Godin, it, it's right. shipping the work. It's all about, you just, you put it out and you don't know if it's good and you don't know if it's bad. And you're just, you put it out there because the luck has to find you somehow yeah. and it can't find you if you don't ship your work out. Yeah. So I think that that's, it's a very good point that you have to be there somewhere in the, in the, in the atmosphere to, to let the luck hit you. It's right. not going to find you sitting at home underneath a blanket. Right. I got a cold call for my first job in branding. If I hadn't gone on the interview from that cold call and gotten the job, then I wouldn't have ended up in branding. I don't think because it was completely by chance that that had happened. And then later I got a cold call about doing this little fledgling internet radio show in 2004 and started it in 2005 and was terrible at it for a really long time. <laughs> but I really enjoyed wow. it. I really loved doing it. 
And so I kept doing it and hopefully got better at it. Now it's 17 years later and I'm still doing it and still hopefully improving and getting better and evolving and changing it. So yeah, that call was a lucky call. Somebody decided to give me a shot and I took it. If I had stopped after the first year, luck would have had very little to do with my future because I would have stopped before I became good at it. Um, exactly. Before you even really, you really began. And I'm so glad you brought up this point about, you know, 17 years, you have met extraordinary people. You've interviewed extraordinary people, like talented, amazing, best in class, best in their field. And so I'm curious, you know, and then you yourself have inspired a lot of people and, you know, I was geeking out about today. So I'm curious, who inspires you or who is someone that you would love in the next 12 months to join you on the podcast? Um, well, there are people that inspire me that I've had on the podcast. So like Seth Godin has been on the show several times and he is a constant source of inspiration for anybody that doesn't get his daily newsletter. Highly, highly, highly recommended. It's magnificent and so pertinent. I almost feel like it's a daily shot in the arm. So, so Seth, for sure. Uh, my wife, Roxanne Gay, really inspires me every single day. Um, my students inspire me because I'm always learning from them. Uh, Steve Heller, my mentor, and somebody who's probably influenced my life more than anyone. Uh, very, very inspiring. And then in terms of people that I would love to interview because they inspire me, um, Joni Mitchell. Oh, right. Barbara Streisand. Bette Midler. You know, people that, like, those the musicians that I'm, you know, madly in love with. Uh, Lynn manuel Miranda, I'd love to have him on the show. Michelle Obama, you know, there's a, a never-ending list of people that I, I aspire to be able to interview at some point. Oh, I mean, the, Michelle Obama is just, talk right. about a book that I felt like I could read three times over. I yeah. loved it. I know some people were like, eh, I loved it. I was like, I'm drinking the Kool-Aid on this one. Done. I'm curious for you just to like geek out for a second because you've seen so much of the design world switch. You know, I always say like it used to be print and then from print, we went to packaging and packaging, we went to experiential. Then we went into digital and native ads and now we're getting into TikTok and social media. And I wanted to geek out and ask you this. So I had a friend the other day we were having lunch and he was telling me he's thinking about moving from LA to Florida. And so we were talking about what that would entail for him and his wife, whatever. And he starts talking about this interior decorator. And I'm like, well, you don't need that yet because you don't even have the new place in Florida. So why would you need an interior decorator? And he goes, oh, no, no, I just, I'm not kidding when I say this. So don't laugh. Uh, we just hired an interior decorator because we bought land in the metaverse. I kid you not. And we hired this woman to build our meta, meta, decorate our metaverse house. Wow. And it just like, I don't know if like I'm living in Austin and now that I'm out of New York and LA, like, I don't know, I'm living under a rock or something, but are people like, is that design like the future? Like, are you hearing that? Are you seeing that? I was blown away. And it wasn't like he was paying 
$500 for this woman to like design his metaverse house. I mean, he was paying her like five figures, like what you would pay for an actual home that you live in for this VR. I don't want to call it imaginary because that's sort of lessening it, but it's a digital house. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of um, that Black Mirror episode where um, the two women sort of find each other in different time um, and have that experience together. And it would be kind of amazing for anybody that wasn't able to move around on their own or experience a moment in time that they wanted to re-experience, be able to go back to something like that. But, you know, I, with everything that I love doing, um, thinking about the future and, and the trends that we're seeing and forecasting or, or that people are forecasting is not my bailiwick. <laughs> I'm more of an analyst. I'm endlessly fascinated by trying to make sense of the past. <laughs> As opposed to trying to think about, and and maybe that's a that's a sort of Achilles heel in that I tend to see things that I don't understand um, with my own trepidation, and so that's also why I can really relate to people that are like, oh, I'll do that when I feel better about that, or when somebody else proves that it works, or whatever it is. Well, and I just think it's so interesting because you know, something that Abby, my business partner, and I talk about all the time, she's our creative director and just as all, I'm still doing stick figures. She's amazing. And she said, you know, you really see people now who are getting into these really niche, you know, all they do is Photoshop, mm -hmm. like couldn't open in design, couldn't do, you know, that the, the, we're really seeing people like niche, niche, niche down. And it sort of makes me a little sad because I, I feel that sometimes we're going in the direction of like the death of the generalist, which, or, or this sort of big vision that I think, you know, when we think about brands or we think about design or the future, there has to be someone, I don't know, aboard the ship who's kind of looking at the whole boat. Yeah. And it sort of feels like we're losing that. What was so interesting in the 80s when everything began to become more technological and we use technology more to design as opposed to drafting, designers suddenly had to become polymaths. You know, we had to be typesetters and then we had to be retouchers and then we had to be coders. And there was something really interesting about that need to be a polymath because then you were forced to really expand your range. Um, I didn't realize that things were becoming so specialized again. And that, that is a little bit sad because I do think that designers in particular really benefit from being able to do a lot of different things at the same time and pull from a lot of different disciplines, whether it be those technical skills or cultural anthropology or behavioral psychology or business strategy or statistics or creativity. I think those are really critical. Well, and I think they're really critical, at, you know, when you were talking earlier about designing your life and really thinking about your career, I always think that there, you kind of have to look at it from two levels, like the nitty gritty of like, what am I going to do next quarter? Whether that's asking for a promotion or looking for a new job or like, like, but then you also have to have simultaneously 
this whole other conversation with yourself, which is like big view. And I was listening to a podcast you were on where you were talking about how you give your students, I think you were given, write down a five-year plan, but you give your students a 10-year plan. And I think that that duality is really important. And I'm wondering if that's something that you feel that people struggle with, that you not only have to think about the next quarter or the next year or the next month, but really 10 years, which to some of us, at least to me sometimes is sort of mind blowing. I'm like, are we going to be with robots? And is Elon going to like, I don't know, own Twitter in 10 years? I don't know. I don't know what it's going to look like in 10 years. I I just got a pitch from a publicist who was um, exciting me with the ideas that her client has about a book that's just coming out about what the scenarios look like. And I think I might have him on the show just because they're so exciting to me. And then I'll learn. Um, I mean, in some ways, I think that it's an important exercise in that it helps you unshackle your imagination. But I also think that the act of declaring what you want is critically important, even if those things change. So so I don't think it's so much as, as planning as, as it is envisioning. Envisioning. And... For Javier, who just wrote, am I too late to design my career at 52? Javier, anyone I'm, 60. I'm 60. I'm 60 years old and I'm still designing my career. So no, you're not too late. You're a baby. You're a baby. You're a baby. A baby. I, I love that. Um, I love that. And I love this idea of really looking at you and, and quite frankly, like stealing your homework, copying your homework, Debbie, because you've already done it. And so why should I do it when you've already done it? We have the answers. So if you're ready to rock and roll, I would love to just ask you these speed round questions and then just blatantly steal your homework on that. Absolutely. I'll give you my notes. Absolutely. I love this. Okay. What is something that you have started using or doing lately that you absolutely love? Oh, the love part. I, I had no answer until you said love. But okay, that you really like. Well, um, I have never been a person who liked water very much. And I would drink almost yeah. anything else. And I was, um, for many, many, many decades, addicted to Diet Dr. Pepper. And then I moved into kombucha because it was much healthier. Yep. And then I began to realize that my chronic stomach problems might be related to carbonation. And so I recently eliminated all carbonation from my diet. And there's very little to drink that isn't full of sugar that is not carbonated. And so oh, I've had tea. <laughs> I'm not a tea person. I've never been a tea person, but I do drink coffee. I do drink coffee. But um, so I am now drinking water for like the first time in my life, lots and lots of water. So yeah. I like it. You know, okay. I mean, I, I, I never forgot that Kate Moss once said that um, nothing tastes as good as skinny feels. And I kind of don't agree with her, actually. I think there's a lot of really good things that taste better than skinny feels. But what I can tell you is that water is delicious when you don't have stomach pain. Um, this is probably TM, TMI, but I'll just say it. I, I, I also disagree with that quote because I always say I could have a six pack, 
but this is my fun fat. You know what I mean? <laughs> this is my cake. This is my Prosecco's. These are my yeah. spicy margaritas. Like, let me have my fun fat. Yeah. You know it, what I mean? Yeah. All I want to say to live with, with that. Pizza. One word, girl. Pizza. Pizza. It's like, let me live with that. Okay. Um, what is the next thing that you're really hoping to learn more about? Could be like a subject area or a skill or a language or I don't know what. I'd like to learn how to relax. Oh, me too. Me too. How do we do that? Also becoming a, a better gardener. It's something I started doing during the pandemic. And I'd like to, to really hone my skills as a gardener. I got a coach, Debbie. I have a garden, garden coach. coach? <gasps> Is it somebody that you can talk to like on Zoom or do you have to be in person? She comes over every other week and I have these... Fl- beds and she teaches me, okay, this is where we just planted tomatoes. We just planted cucumber. I don't know what I'm doing. I lived in New York for 13 years. I didn't even, I didn't even have like a snake plant that I could keep alive in New York. So now that I'm in Austin, yeah, I got a coach. I was like, if Tom Brady has 10 coaches, I need a coach for how to garden. Yeah. I'm going to look into that. That's great. So I got one. Um, what I have this theory that we all know that saying, you know, you are the summation of the five people you spend the most time with. But now I think that we, we are so attached to our phones and just our digital everything that we're also the summation of the five accounts, whether that, that is on LinkedIn or Instagram or whoever that you follow. So I'm curious if there are humans or brands that you follow on the social media channels that just every time you see their content, you're like lit up. You're like, yes, Elizabeth Gilbert. Like, I love this. Um, well, my wife has an amazing newsletter called The Audacity, which I love. Um, so that that's something I, I really um, recommend. How can uh, people sign up for that? Uh, just do a Google on Roxanne Gay 1N, The Audacity. They'll take you right okay. there, the free version. So Check. it's really, really good. She does a, a a link pack every week as well. That's just hysterical. Um, Tina Roth Eisenberg, Swiss Miss. She's amazing. I love her and I just get so much joy reading her. Um, so I go to her every day. Um, the Marginalian, which is Maria Popova's site, which used to be Brain Pickings. I love that and read it every day. It's, and she also has two newsletters that are both free. Um, I love Amanda Stern. She has a great newsletter as well now, Amanda Stern. Um, Monica Danielle, formerly Monica Bilanco, uh, formerly a mommy blogger, now just writing about life. And she has a, a great free newsletter as well. And um, let's see. Oh, Jason Kotke, kotke.org. And uh, he's been writing... I think it's been 20 years, maybe more. So he's another person I look at every single day. Uh, where do you read all these newsletters? Like, do you read them when you just wake up? Do you read them at the end of the day to unwind? Do you split them up? I read them between things. I find between. that they're good respites. And so mm-hmm. even if I'm doing work, if I need just a moment, I'll check something. And I find that to be so much more enriching than checking Twitter. <laughs> Oh, yes. Twitter, any, you go down the rabbit hole. And then all of a sudden, 23 minutes later, you're like, oh, it's just be a 10 minute break. Exactly. How did that happen? And it could just be like a 
five minute break. It's just so enriching and I just get joy from it. I love this. Okay. We love homework. I love homework as well. If you could give us all a homework assignment, like do either read this or listen to this, or I don't know, do this thing, do this homework assignment sometime over the next week, what homework assignment would you give everybody listening to this right now? Oh my God. Homework assignment. Homework assignments. Like we're back in school. We love homework. A plus plus. Write your 10 year plan. Write your 10-year plan. That's what I would do. Write your 10-year plan. When I was on the Tim Ferriss show, I talked about the 10-year plan, the 10-year plan to a remarkable life. And one of Tim's listeners made a website, and it's I think it's called your10yearplan.com. And he literally transcribed what I said. And so you have directions. So people can go to that and write their own 10-year plan. I love that. And also like talk about someone who's a for effort, like heard a podcast, created a whole website. Jeez. What am I doing with my life now? That sounds amazing. And so for anybody that doesn't know, you are actually going live next Thursday, April 28th. So we can give you a link. Anyone who is listening to that, if you go to sendmenotes.com, we will send you that link so you can hang out with Debbie again next week. But thank you so much for joining today. This has been an absolute dream. You dream come true. Thank you, Kim. You are just such a luminous person. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. Oh, Thank you so much. And thank you everybody for joining today. Don't forget, you can see Debbie live next week and check out her LinkedIn learning course, which is also coming out next week. We're really excited about it over here. I'm going to be one of the first people watching that. I cannot wait. And we can send you all the resources and all the books and podcasts that we named today. If you go to sendmenotes.com, drop in your email address. We can send all of those to you. So thank you so much for joining. And I will see you next week, Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, same time, same place. Thanks so much and have an amazing rest of your week. That was some good stuff. Thanks for being a part of this week's Coffee with Kim. If podcasts are your thing, subscribe to the show and you'll see a new episode appear next week in your favorite listening app. If you want to be a part of the conversation, join us live on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern over on LinkedIn. You can RSVP at getcoffeewithkim.com. I want you to have your questions answered because why should I get to have all the fun? And let's be honest, you know how to ask some hard-hitting questions. My guests and I cannot wait to meet you. See you soon.